Okay, so this morning we continue our study through the confession of faith, uh, still in chapter chapter one here. And uh, just by way of quick review, if you weren't here with us last week, we looked at the necessity of Scripture, um, in particular for a saving knowledge of God and also for obedience to His will. Um, and if you remember. We talked about how nature generally reveals something about God and enough about him that all men, according to what we looked at in Romans 1, know him. In other words, all men are aware of his being just by by nature. Uh, We look at a sunrise, we look at a bird, we look at uh, fruit growing out of the ground, and all of them testify to us, there is a God. And so that reality was, was laid forth. And we looked at as well that despite the testimony that we have from nature, none of those are sufficient to bring men to a saving knowledge of who God is in Christ. Uh, that must come through the proclamation of the gospel through the word of God. And so the confession uh, laid out that it pleased God to reveal himself to us and to give us a written record of that will. And then we briefly discussed God giving us one book that's broken up into 66 smaller books and how some other books, uh, those specifically known as the Apocrypha, were left out of the canon of Scripture because they were clearly not authoritative the way the inspired books are. And that left us off uh, up to, that brought us up to paragraph 4 in chapter 1. And that's where we're going to pick up uh, this morning. And just just by way of reminder, if you're looking for uh, further study, a couple resources. One that we're primarily using for this study is the Modern Exposition of the 1689 by Sam Waldron. Um, so if you're if you're wanting to dive a little bit more, we're, we're taking a lot of material out of that. Um, and there's also another uh, website called 1689commentary.org. Um, It's not a complete commentary on the 1689, but what they have up is very uh, helpful. So, again, just a couple resources there if you want to dive a little bit deeper into that. Okay, let's look at paragraph four here. Somebody want to read that for us? Thanks, Des. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. The author thereof, therefore, is to be received as it is the word of God. Okay. So this, this paragraph and the one that's going to follow, paragraph 5, they both deal with the topic of the authority of Scripture. And paragraph 4 deals with it from an objective position. That, that is, it simply states that the Word of God is the Word of God, and therefore it needs to be obeyed. Whereas paragraph 5, as we're going to see, is, is more subjective. That is, it, it gives reasons why we should be persuaded uh, that it is uh, the Word of God. So let's deal with paragraph 4 here first. Um, if you notice in that first sentence, the confession says, this will be a little bit different than what Desmond read, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, the Holy Scriptures obligate belief. That's an important statement there. They don't suggest belief. They don't simply say it would be good for you to follow what the Word of God says, but if you don't, that's okay, right? No, it it obligates 
belief. That's an authoritative statement. Um, Paul points to this reality in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, when he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So God inspired Paul here to write to the Galatians and to all believers about the absolute necessity of believing this one gospel, this one message that we have. God demands belief in that one message. Acts 17 is another good passage for you to uh, take a look at. God commands all people everywhere to repent um, at, because of this uh, reality of our standing before God. And God promises condemnation on those who preach any other message than the one he has given, right? So that, that's a serious um, statement here. Any other message um, is faulty, and the one who proclaims it is damned. Now, as we consider the evidence for the absolute divine authority of Scripture, I want to look at it from the perspective of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. Um, never do you see the New Testament pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, that was doctrinally wrong, right? They, they missed that, so let me, let me fix it now. That never happens. The Bible never corrects itself. Rather, the New Testament always affirms what was said in the Old Testament and points to it as an infallible, reliable guide. And I want to refer to a few points here that will help solidify this in your mind. These aren't on your notes here. You can jot these down somewhere if you would like. Um, they're also in that resource that I mentioned um, from Sam Waldron on the modern exposition of the 1689. But when we think about the authority of the Old Testament, we want to see what the New Testament has to say about that. So number one, the Old Testament is referred to as sacred and holy. Look at these passages here, 2 Corinthians 3.15 and Romans 1, verses 1 and 2. If somebody could read that for us. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart from the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, good. So you have the sacred writings, the Holy Scriptures, the showing the nature of these things. They are set apart. They're distinct. Think about how many writings there are in the world. And yet this one book is completely set aside from every other book that you would stack up next to it. That's an amazing reality. But that's how the scriptures are defined for us. Number two, the Old Testament writings are the oracles of God. B.B. Warfield states here that the word oracle universally designates a divine utterance. Okay, so in Romans 3, Paul makes this argument. Then what advantage has the Jew or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, right? The Gentiles didn't have that. They didn't have the written record. The Jews did. That's a great advantage. 
You have God revealing himself specifically to his people. That's a great blessing. And that's how the New Testament points back to the Old Testament. It says this is what the Old Testament is. Number three here, God is the ultimate speaker and author of the Old Testament. Acts 2, 16 and 17. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, so here's Joel speaking. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So here's Joel speaking, and him saying, here's what God is declaring. Okay, And Peter's pointing back to this in, in his sermon there in Acts 2. He's pointing back, and he said, yes, Joel was the speaker, but God was the ultimate speaker. Okay? Joel was simply the mouthpiece through which God was working. Another passage here that's very much in line with that statement, Acts 4, verses 24 and 25, if somebody could read that for us. When they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. Okay, again, through the mouth, this is what the Holy Spirit said. Through the mouth of David, this is what the Holy Spirit said. So, again, there's, there's reference back to the Old Testament showing its divine nature. Now, based on what we just looked at in number three there, number four says, for this reason, the phrases God says and Scripture says are equivalent. Okay? So when you read the Word of God, you're reading God's very word. And I know that for us, you know, we just, yeah, of course, that's a theologically correct statement. We wouldn't think otherwise. But sometimes I think we lose the weight of that as we open our Bibles, that God is speaking to me. This demands my utmost attention uh, to that. And it's easy to just kind of take it for granted, just to pick it up and treat it like a common book. Um, So here's what... Paul is inspired to say in both Romans and Galatians, Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, that text there in Romans 9 is Paul pulling from Exodus 3 where God is speaking with Moses, right? And so God is the one who says this and yet Paul writes, for the scripture says, because he's showing the equivalency of the scriptures, what the scripture says and what God says. And then also in Galatians 3.8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul again referencing Genesis 12 there, okay, where God is speaking with Abraham. And Paul says, the scripture says, or the scripture is saying this. Okay, so you see the equivalency of those two, those two things. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Somebody want to read that for us? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, now what's interesting about that, or who can tell me where that's from? Genesis chapter 2, right at the end of chapter 2 there. 
<clears throat> that's not a direct statement by God. When you go back and you look at that, that's not God said, therefore, but yet Jesus attributes it to him, to God. Right? So here's Moses writing the Pentateuch, the record of creation, and Jesus refers back to this and said, this is God saying this, even though it was Moses who penned it. Okay? So those, that's the way that the scriptures or the New Testament references the authority of the Old Testament. Now, number five, since God is the true author of scriptures, they can be and are written with the distant future in mind. So this is why Paul is able to say in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay? So when you, when you read back through the Old Testament, you look at this and say, okay, this was written to these people during this time, but it was written to us as well. Right? It just didn't have one single audience because God determined this to be for all the people of God. Okay, so that's important to see. And on the basis of that, since God is the author of Scripture, number six here, it's authoritative in detail. Arguments are built on the very form of a single word. This is Paul in Galatians 3. He says this, Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, that's a massive <laughs> argument there. So, you see the detail of the authority. It's just one word, okay? And, and just taking that, that's not a plural, it's singular. That's what Paul's, Paul's referring to here. This, the promises are found in Christ, and he's building his argument off of that reality and the authority of God's word in every little detail. Now, we're not going to look at these scriptures, but you can write these down. Um, these are considered five classic passages which pronounce the divine authority of the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 16. I'm sure you're familiar with that one. All scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Matthew 5, 17 through 18. John 10, 34 through 36. And Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Um, as is noted here, they assert that the Old Testament is an organic whole and in detail is God-breathed, the product of direct divine origination and determination, permanent and unbreakable in its every assertion, and as written, is perfectly authoritative. Okay? So that's what the scripture declares for itself, and that's why the writers of the confession said this, this is the truth. We need to stand upon this in every aspect of of it. It's authoritative. It obligates belief from us. Okay? All right, let's move on here now to this next section. And let's look at paragraph five. Okay, it's a little bit longer, but if I could have somebody read that for us, that would be helpful. Thank you. you bet. The testimony of the Church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent Moreover, the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence 
that the scriptures are the word of God. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the scriptures comes from the internal works of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Really helpful paragraph. Uh, there's so much to say on that. But um, so again, remembering when this confession was originally written, uh, this is countering Roman Catholicism. It's directed against that. Uh, Roman Catholicism affirming that the church is able to give an infallible confirmation of the Bible. And the reformers recognized that the testimony of the church had a certain value, absolutely. Um, it was the divine excellencies of Scripture itself applied by the Holy Spirit, however, to the heart, which were the genuine and effective authentic authentication of the Scripture. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes looking at specifically in this paragraph, and, and specifically that last sentence there in paragraph Five, which says, even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now, the question that we might ask here is, if the scriptures are true in and of themselves, why do we need the testimony of the Holy Spirit to affirm their truthfulness. Okay, let me, let me ask that again, because I want you to answer it. Tell me how you would answer this. Okay, If the scriptures are true in and of themselves, or since the scriptures are true in and of themselves, why do we need the testimony of the Holy Spirit to affirm their truthfulness? How would we answer that? Lucy. Amen. Amen. Very good. Right? If, if we can summarize that in one word, we would say sin. <laughs> sin makes it necessary for the testimony of the Holy Spirit to bear witness uh, in our hearts. Our depravity perverts our ability to correctly understand the scriptures. Right? So sin in us causes us, as Lucy said there perfectly, to suppress the truth and it so spiritually blinds us to the light of divine revelation. And this is what we see, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Somebody can read that for us. Uh, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In a case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the, of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of our God. Amen. Thank you, Scott. So, uh, what, a, what a great passage there. So, you're, you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and you're like, man, I, I knocked that out of the park, man. I couldn't have explained that any better than, than I did. And just blank, right? There's no ability to, to grasp that. And at times, that can cause discouragement. Um, but we recognize that the Lord must open that person's eyes to see that truth, that their eyes are blinded to the truth of the gospel. 
Okay, the Holy Spirit must take that word and awaken that person. And I'll tell you, that also very much frees you up in evangelism at the same time. Um, it, it, it releases that pressure that many have put on people that you got to close the deal. <laughs> you got to get this person. Um, and, and that's our plea, right? We, we urge men, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we plead with men to come to a saving knowledge of the truth, but we recognize that the Spirit of God must take the Word of God that we've proclaimed and open that person's eyes to that truth. So, as we've seen in this passage right here, the testimony of the Holy Spirit has for, has for its nature the removal of that evil ethical disposition which blinds man to the light of divine revelation. Uh, the Spirit is the one who enables us to see. Amen? Right, if, and that humbles you at the same time, right? Because you're not looking at you know your neighbor maybe, and it's like, why don't they see it, right? How could they be so blind? I mean, it's so clear to me, and we say that as if we've believed this all our lives, right? And we forget, you know, where where we have come from. Uh, it humbles you. You you beg God, please, as you've done to this wretch that I am, and opened my blind eyes. Please do it for my neighbor. Right or do it for my family members. Jeremy had us pray at the beginning here. Norm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Amen. Yes. Yes. We can't depend on keen yeah, no, we we got to beg for the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal the Word of God to us. We're utterly dependent. Yeah, very, very good. Um, okay, so a couple other passages that come alongside this. Um, Jesus' testimony here to Peter. Uh, after Peter's declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? He's like, Peter, you got it, man. Way to go. Right? No. Um, immediately, right? So, you know, you could feel maybe Peter like, man, I nailed it, you know? And Jesus answers and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, that, that keeps an evangelist humble, right? That, as you proclaim the truth of God's word, you recognize if they're like, man, thank you so much. You know, what, the way that you explained it, I finally got it. And we should just say, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Right? I'm glad that I was the instrument through which God worked, but God opened your eyes. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? The Spirit of God must awaken that person to the truth of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4, and 4 through 6, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because, here's how we know this, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's a great passage that goes in line with Galatians 5, that 
the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, right? Receive this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those are a few passages here um, that the paragraph 5 here, even though it may not directly reference those, it's getting at that our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Okay? So you, you can continue just to pile evidence upon evidence upon evidence before someone. The Spirit of God must open that person's eyes. George? In the natural, who would want to believe that you want to be first, you got to be last. You want to live, you got to die. You want to win, you got to lose. Yeah. No? Yep. So yep. the Spirit is the one that helps us understand yes. that. Yeah. And, and that's a blessing. You know, when we truly understand that, we can, we can truly say when we grasp that, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. The reason that I believe is because God in his infinite mercy opened my eyes to see and how thankful we ought to be for that. All right, let's move on here to paragraph six. We still have five paragraphs to go in about 20 minutes, so I'm going to work through these fairly quickly. All right, who's reading paragraph six for us? Okay, Lucy, thank you. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word. We recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church are common to human actions and organizations, and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom, following the general rules of the word, which must always be observed. Okay. So in this paragraph, we're looking at the sufficiency of the scriptures. And the question that we want to ask is, sufficient for what? And that first sentence here in the, in the confession really makes it very clear. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. So the Scriptures don't claim to be sufficient for teaching you how your car runs, uh, how to learn Spanish. Um, scriptures don't you know, show us how to solve intricate math problems things of, of that nature, but it is sufficient for the things that pertain to godly living and equipping us for eternity. And ultimately, that is what matters when the day is done, right? All those other things are uh, maybe necessary in the moment, but on the day of salvation, on the day of judgment, um, they'll fade. Um, one other point on this paragraph uh, before we move on is, is worth noting here. Um, Right after the little footnote 10 there in that paragraph, um, it says, we recognize, and I just want to read that again, we recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church are common to human actions and organizations and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom following the general rules of the word which must always be observed. You know, upon first reading of that, you can think that it seems to be taking away from the sufficiency of Scripture, right? Because it's saying that some things, uh, the light of nature, right, can, can help us see. But 
and we'll get into this more in many weeks from now, but in uh, chapter 22, where it deals more with what's called the regulative principle, that, that uh, our worship is regulated by Scripture. It's governed by Scripture. And that's what it's getting at here, that um, there are things that involve circumstantial matters that commonly vary from church to church, um, and that we're, we have some freedom in that to order those things. Like, for example, what times does the service start, right? There's nothing in Scripture that says, hey, you have to start at 1030 in the morning or else God's not worshipped properly. Um, how many services do you have? Do you have a morning service and an evening service? Do you just have a morning service, right? Those are things that um, we have some, some freedom in. Uh, the, the place of worship, right? The place of worship. We have some freedom you know, within that. It's not confined to 500 North Bumby Avenue. Um, how about the, the order of service, right? I mean, there's thought given to that. We try to do that in a way that's honoring to the Lord, but there's nothing that says, hey, you need to sing three songs before you do this and then that and so on and so forth. So that's what the confession is getting at there, that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church that are common to human actions and organizations and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom. Okay, so that can vary from, from place to place uh, where you go. And there's not necessarily one thing wrong uh, over, over the other or, ne- or even one thing right there. Uh, these are matters which vary according to the needs of God's people around the world. Okay, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more in chapter 22 and when we talk a little bit more about the regulative principle um, but these circumstances, they don't involve what we would say are the essential and non-negotiable elements of worship, such as the public reading of the scripture, right? We're specifically told that that should happen uh, in, in the service. We should give ourselves to that. Um, the expositional preaching of the word of God, those things are necessary. The Lord's table, baptism, worshiping on the Lord's day, those are things that are non-negotiable, but those other matters are things that there's flexibility uh, within that, okay? And that's what the confession is getting out there, because when you first read through that, it can be a little confusing. It seems to be talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, and then it seems to be kind of backing up on that and saying that, well, the light of nature can also help govern some things. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, what's, what's going on with that? So, okay, let's move on to paragraph 7. And if I can have somebody read paragraph 7 for us. Some things in scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. Okay, good. Um, We can all probably testify uh, to that reality that there are some things that are easier to understand in Scripture than, than others, uh, right? But what the confession is getting at here, what's being dealt with here, is what is called the clarity of Scripture or what many theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture. Um, I just want to bring out a couple points from this paragraph. Uh, the first one is that the Bible is clear on the issue of faith and life, Okay. Um, I want to look at a few passages of how the Bible defines itself, um, how it describes itself. Psalm 119, 105. 
very popular passage, one that many of us have buried in our hearts, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So although there are some things that are hard to understand, and we'll look at the passage that talks about that, generally as we think about the scriptures, this is what it is. It's a light unto uh, our path, a lamp to our feet, right? It guides us, it directs us, it's not obscure uh, in that way. Proverbs 6, 22 and 23, another testimony about the scriptures. This is a wonderful passage. Here's what it says. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. Isn't that wonderful how the, how the scriptures are defined regarding us? When you walk, they're going to lead you. When you lie down, all right? They'll watch over you. Isn't that, that that's just awesome, just the care of God for us. When you awake, they talk with you. They're instructing you. They're guiding you. They're directing you. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And then the second point that I want to bring out from this um, that the confession mentions is that the Bible is not equally clear in all its parts, right? If you're familiar at all with Scripture, you know that, right? There's some passages you read and you're just like, I don't have a clue what I just read, or I don't understand. But hopefully, that causes you to dig deep and, and to go into the Word, and hopefully, maybe a year from now, a passage that was somewhat obscure to you is starting to clear up. You understand some more things about it now. But Peter's testimony here is, is helpful. Somebody want to read that for us? Count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Okay, so Peter asserts here there are some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand, but we don't want to overlook is what he carefully qualifies here as well. He notes that it's the untaught and the unstable who twist those scriptures to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Okay, so we don't want to bump into this passage and be like, well, I'm, I'm just not going to read that. He says there are things that are hard to understand, not impossible to understand. Everything that God has given to us, he's given to us to reveal himself to us. There are things that take, that's why God has given teachers to the church, right? Maybe there's a difficult doctrine you've been trying to work through, and then you read this guy, and the Lord gifted him to be able to unpack that more clearly for you. And now you can read it and be like, oh, okay, now, now I get it, right? I think a lot of us can testify to that, coming to the understanding of the doctrines of grace and election and things like that, where maybe at first you were averse to that, and like, I don't want that. And then you're reading, and then you're studying, and you're looking, and then... There are things that become more clear to you. So we don't want to just be like, well, I can't understand any of that. We need to give ourselves. God's revealed himself to us. If there's anything that demands our attention and study, it's the word of God, right? Um, it, when you're doing any other type of study, maybe you're studying a really difficult math equation or something like that, uh, and you, know, you don't give up. You persevere. You keep studying, and eventually you come to the answer. Well, if there's anything that demands that type of study, isn't it the Word of God, how he's revealed himself to us, 
right? Okay, so I saw a couple of hands go up. Norm and then George. Gold nuggets are never found on the surface of the soil beneath the big peaks. Yes, amen. Amen. We need to go go deep. Yep, George? Right along with that, how much of the hunger and the thirst and the desire do we have to know it? Yeah. And if we don't, that's what we should be asking for, the desire, that hunger, to yep. understand. Yeah. And not be able to dig for that, that, uh, that, uh, that gold. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's move on to paragraph 8. Take a breath and somebody read that for us. <laughs> uh, no, number eight, paragraph, paragraph eight. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the native language of the ancient people of God. The New Testament was written in Greek, which at the time it was written was most widely known to the nations. These testaments were inspired directly by God and by his unique care and providence for kept purity down through the ages. They are therefore true and authoritative, so that in all religious controversies, the church must make their ultimate appeal to them. Mm -hmm. All God's people have a right to and a claim on the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Not all of God's people know these original languages, so the scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they come. In this way, the word of God may dwell richly in all so that they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Amen. Again, what a blessing. We kind of hit on this in our study through the Reformation. We were looking at Tyndale and his translation of the uh, Greek and part of uh, the Hebrew uh, into English and the blessing that we derive from that every week that we open, open the word of God. Uh, what, what, a, what a gift that truly is here. But what the paragraph hits on is the availability of Scripture in this, in this paragraph. Not everybody reads Hebrew and Greek, and certainly not everybody has it readily accessible to learn all across the world. And so the confession says here that, therefore, it's vital that the Word of God is translated into the common language of the people that it comes to. And this takes years and years of work, right? Some missionaries go into places where people don't even have a written language yet. They, they have to begin with first formulating a language for them before they can translate the Word of God into that language that at that time doesn't exist. Um, so you can just think about the amount of work that something like that would take. But when you're convinced, you know, you could think, man, that just seems very difficult. You probably recognize that, man, even in my lifetime, we're not even going to get a language for the people yet, much less get the word of God into that language. Now, what drives a person has to be the reality that this book needs to be in the hands of every person. Amen. You have to be convinced that it's the word of God, that it's worth giving your life for just to begin to help people to have a language so that the Bible can be translated into it. The grace of God has sustained many of many missionaries in that work of translation, and you hear them testifying to that reality. Okay, um, let's, let's not say any more about that. Let's go on to paragraph 9 now. The infallible rule of 
of interpreting scripture is the scripture itself. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full meaning of any part of scripture, and each passage has only one meaning, not many, it must be understood in light of other passages that speak more clearly. Okay, so this paragraph is massively important from a hermeneutical perspective, right? For understanding how to study the Bible is that the scripture... The infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. Okay? We, we have to understand that and uh, apply that. Um, that would really help clear up a lot of controversies uh, in our day if we let the Scripture uh, define itself and interpret itself. Um, so you can, you can think of just examples of this. Perhaps you've had this when, when you're talking to people. Um, you know, they'll say... Well, Paul says here that justification is by faith alone, and James says over here that it's not by faith alone, but by works also, right? And, and how you clear that up is you look at the totality of what's being said by Paul and James and understanding the context in which they're writing. Um, that's really helpful, you know, when you, when you look at that. That's... Amen. In other words, uh, all of Scripture just speaks of only one point. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So that's, that's really helpful. And just, by the way, just to throw a little plug in here, if you're, if you're interested in hermeneutics and learning more about how to study the Bible, just another reminder that if you're a member at FBC, that you have the ability to go on to the Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary website and study it for free. That, that class is free to you as a member of, of Faith Baptist. So um, take advantage of that. That's, that's a great resource that we have. Um, and uh, that, that certainly will help you and aid you greatly in your study of God's Word. All right, let's, let's conclude here with paragraph 10. Somebody want to take that for us? We'll just say a couple words and finish up here. The Supreme Judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations, and in whose judgment we are to rest, is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. In this Scripture, our faith finds its final word. Amen. So, you know, one of the things that I hope has come out of just this first chapter here in the confession, and it goes back to kind of what we talked about at the introduction last week, was, you know, some people are averse to having confessions of faith because they say you're trying to keep those on par with Scripture. I, I can't think of how much more clear the confession could have been in this first chapter to say that it's the Word of God alone that is the standard. I mean, there's a sense in which the, the men here write in such a way they say, even what we're writing here in this confession, read that with an open Bible and make sure what we're saying is in accord with what the Word of God says. This paragraph pleads with us to accept that wherever there's a religious controversy, we must appeal to the scriptures to find the answer. There's no higher authority than this. So, Whatever other book, theological book we're reading, which there are tons of really good ones out there, we should be reading it with an open Bible next to it to affirm the truthfulness of what's being, being said in it. Maybe if not physically, that thought should be in your mind.
uh, to, to keep the word of God open there. And I love what, how it ends here. It alone has the final word on all religious disagreements or doctrinal questions. Again, we must joy, joyfully submit to what it says because it is the word of God. Okay? All right. That's where we're going to finish for this week. Sorry for the crash course through <laughs> chapter one there. Uh, Lord willing, next week, Will's going to pick up on God and the Holy Trinity. So we'll be looking, looking forward to that. But let me close this out in prayer, and then we'll dismiss into the sanctuary.